Good morning. This year between Christmas when we celebrate the birth of Jesus and Easter when we celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus, we're working through one of the four gospel accounts about Jesus. The second one in the part of the Bible we call the New Testament, the Gospel of Mark. And we're seeing how from a real life, day-to-day living thing, the best way we could describe the message of Jesus, of this book, is more Jesus. The gospel accounts of Jesus' life are are not so much the principles of living, which is what we think we want, but the Gospels, and especially Mark, are all about, are demonstrating for us something that's underneath those principles, recording for us how, number one, Jesus proved he was, he is, the more that our hearts are longing for, the only one worthy of our trust, all of our trust, entrusting all of ourselves to him, and number two, how he provided, paved the way for us to be able to do that. So turn uh, this morning to Mark chapter 2 in your, in your Bible app. If you want, want to follow along there, please follow along. We won't be having the text all on your screen today. Uh, beginning at verse 13 of chapter 2. And we're going to answer three questions this morning and, and think through it, especially this first question as we read this first part. What is it that Jesus wants? What does Jesus want? Number two, later on, what is the condition for getting what Jesus wants to give? And number three, what do I experience when I get what Jesus wants? Beginning at verse two, or chapter two, verse 13. Once again, Jesus went outside, out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed Jesus. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who began to follow him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with sinners and tax collectors? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick. I haven't come to call the righteous, but sinners. So what is it that Jesus wants? What is it Jesus signaling in this passage that he wants? Let's let's zoom out and see the big picture of what's happening here. We we have to see how this section fits into the overall trajectory of of Jesus' ministry that we've seen to this point, which is just beginning. Up to this point, the primary movement has, has become Jesus' increasing popularity with the people. Chapter 1, verse 22, they're amazed at his teaching and they want to hear more. Verse 23, the demons are threatened by his teaching and how they know they'll be ultimately defeated by him. And so people, verse 45, are flocking to him from all over the countryside. Chapter 2, verse 1, he gets into this room, as we saw last week, crowded with people who want to see what he's doing and hear hear what he has to say. And chapter 2, verse 12, the, the verse that ends the previous section and transitions into this section Everyone is praising God because of Jesus. We have never seen anything like this. But, starting in this passage, we begin to see that not everyone is big on Jesus. 
Another trajectory begins, and it's opposition to Jesus. The Pharisees, the Jewish group of the day that were actually the closest to Jesus in terms of their beliefs, they become his loyal opposition who ultimately try to take him out. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? That's the beginning of this. That, that is one bracket to our passage today. The other bracket at the end, 3 verse 6, the back end bracket, then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with Herodians how they might kill Jesus. See how this is increasing opposition? So why are they asking Jesus' disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? They're not asking out of curiosity. Nor are they asking because they want an answer. They're asking to judge and plant seeds of doubt in the minds of these people. The more people start flocking to Jesus, the more opposition there is to Jesus. Jesus <clears throat> but, but, sorry, back up. What is it that ticks them off? Well, let's look at it a little more closely. In, in, in the first chapter, we saw that Jesus called some normal people, respected businessmen, fishermen, to be his disciples, to make this all-out commitment to him. Now, that would have been a bit of a statement because although we know Jesus spent a lot of time in the synagogue, the the, the sort of the church gathering time of their day. It wasn't anybody from the religious hierarchy that Jesus spends his time with, nor calls to be with him. He has three years to change the course of history, and it's normal people that he calls to be in his circle. But when he calls Levi in front of all of these people that Jesus is teaching, Jesus pushes it one step too far. Levi was a tax collector. See how three times in this passage it's mentioned that he hangs out with tax collectors and sinners. Levi was a tax collector, which is actually a, a sort of a toll collector. Anybody who came into the city and the region to do business or, in the case of Jerusalem, religious business, they had to pay a toll to get in. It was, it was the way the Roman government collected taxes in the territories that it had conquered. You can do your thing. We don't mind what you worship, who you worship. You just have to pay us money to do your thing. Whether it's business or worship, we got to get something off the top. And the more people do the religious thing in Jerusalem, <laughs> the more beneficial it is to Rome, the more money they get. And the way the toll collectors made their money was that they were able to set whatever fee they wanted, and some of them collected a lot of money. They were more like extortioners. And in front of all these people, Jesus calls a tax collector to follow him. Okay, now that's bold, right? But, you know, I guess people can change, right? If they're willing to turn their back on their past, leave their sin, Jesus will take them into his circle. Maybe Jesus sees something in this man that's different from all of the other tax collectors. But Jesus has just started. Jesus actually goes 
into Levi's house to eat with him, and not just with him, a whole gang of hymns. He not only takes one tax collector into his circle, Jesus goes into their circle. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And now the Pharisees have had enough. You see, eating. Eating with someone at their place meant three things. Number one, it was a sign of identifying with them. Validating them, coming onto their turf. A number of years ago, I went for a a, a month-long observation tour with a Christian relief and development organization in the poorest province of Brazil, Recife. One night, this group had made arrangements for us in pairs to stay overnight in the homes of these poor people and allow them to serve us breakfast. Before we could ask, the the organizer said, please, please don't bring anything to them or leave anything with them. They have very, very little means, but they have saved up because they are so honored that you could come to their house and come into their environment. Giving anything to them would be an insult. And they were right. The fact that Jesus went into their house and ate with them was the best thing Jesus could do. He identified with them. But the other thing eating was a sign was including them. When you ate, who you ate with, and especially where you ate with who you ate with, defined your own social boundaries. Who was in, who was not. And eating was all about intimacy. So you look at that. What does it tell you about what Jesus wants? Couldn't we just simply call it true, real relationship? But for the Pharisees, so you can't do that. You go in and eat with them. You might be showing that you're approving of what they're doing. You see, it's this kind of behavior of Jesus, which he does over and over again, that's behind the promise of the risen Jesus in the book of Revelation. I am standing at your door, knocking. If anyone opens the door, I'll gladly come in. I'll eat with them, and they with me. The one whose teaching made sense. The one who could deal with the demons out there and in here. Wants friendship with me. You don't have to hide who you really are for Jesus to want to relate to. You do not have to change for Jesus to say, I love you. Folks, if you're standing on the edge of the church circle wondering if you'd be accepted of people who really knew you, I can't speak for everyone here. I don't even know who I am 
how who I am or what I say comes across to you, but I know Jesus. The Jesus who who is not afraid to be contaminated by lepers is not afraid to be contaminated by identifying with tax collectors. The Jesus whose teaching made sense, who can deal with the demons out there and in here wants to come into your mess and is not threatened by your arrogance or your standoffishness to him. He wants to be your friend. When I think of the power, the the life-shaping power of of this kind of more Jesus friendship relationship, well, the example on my mind these days is is my mother-in-law, whose life we celebrated this past week. And first of all, Adon and I want to thank you for your support and your care for us through this. We've, it's, it's been very meaningful to us. Mom was certainly not perfect, and she was probably more aware of and concerned about her flaws than others around her. But Mom lived this more Jesus, lived out of a more Jesus desire and with a sense of relationship with Jesus. She talked as if Jesus was with her. She grew up in an immigrant family in Saskatchewan, at the tail end of the Depression. As a young teenager, she was sent away to Winnipeg to be a servant for a wealthy family, to, to just help with some family income. And while she was there, her family just up and moved on her to the lower mainland of B.C. to start all over. She wasn't even part of that. In her journal entry as a, as a teenager, uh, much of her journal at that time referenced what she was losing, what she would never see and enjoy again. And she described in great details the beautiful sunset on the farm and the, the, and the fields in the evening sun and, 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 and the loss. But listen to how she worked with her mind as a teenager as she described that loss. It is a real joy to love, she says, but I think it is a still more real joy to be loved. Sometimes I think no one loves me for how they could, but I am sure of one love. Jesus loves me, and because of that, I I should rejoice in him. Here's another entry from when she was 14 years old. My dear Lord Jesus is a truer friend than any here on earth. That's how she lived. Almost a year ago when when she was diagnosed with a new and somewhat rare cancer, her her and dad and their four adult children had an open and frank family discussion as to the options before them. Although she was initially opposed to it, in in the end to, to please dad and the family who wanted her with them, She accepted exploring the possibility of surgery as an option. And so they went and explored that, and it was determined that it was not a viable option for her. And she she seemed not only to be at peace with it, but actually pleased with it. And with a confident smile on her face, last summer she looked at them and said, I think Jesus is calling my name. In some of her last days, <clears throat> late last November, some, some, of that, some of the lack of confidence and, ex- and insecurity about her relationship with Jesus that came from some of her ethnic roots 
surfaced again, and, and it hurt me for her when I was there at the end of November. She said to me, I hope Jesus will see fit to welcome me. Do you think he will? And yet as I pieced together what Dad and LaDonna have told me about her last month and what I saw when I was there 10 days before she died, it was clear to me that the Jesus she loved had, had been there with her and become even more real to her. One night, Dad was awakened by her talking in her sleep, mumbling something, and, and, uh, and it was obvious she was a little disturbed. And then as clear as if she were awake, she quoted John 3.16, For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only Son, so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And then she said, I believe that, Lord Jesus. I believe that, Lord Jesus. And she went into a peaceful sleep for the rest of the night. And Dad, when he texted that to me the next morning, said, I felt I was on holy ground to hear Mom talking personally to Jesus. And in the end, her more Jesus desire, her more Jesus commitment because of a clear understanding of Jesus' all-in commitment to her became a more Jesus awareness that was foundational for a peaceful passing into the arms of the Jesus she lived for. It's all about more Jesus. Are you living in his friendship? So what does it take, what does it require on my part to have this kind of relationship? And to see that, we have to look at the last verse of that section we read, 2 verse 17, uh, to see who it is that doesn't get it and what it is that they don't get. Who doesn't get it? Well, it's, it's the Pharisees, the God people. And what is it they don't get? It's very fascinating. When the teachers of the law were Pharisees, saw a meeting with sinners and disciples, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? <clears throat> now, we, we know these guys don't want to answer that question, and, and we know that because if they did, they would have asked Jesus why he ate with tax collectors and sinners. Why do they ask Jesus' disciples? Because their, their purpose here is to plant seeds of doubt in the minds of these people that Jesus has called. Don't be hoodwinked by the show. Don't be sucked in by, by his flowery words. Look at what he does. He eats with sinners. <laughs> but Jesus knows what they're doing. He either overhears the conversation or, or perhaps, and, and in my mind it's more likely that he sees the conversation and the look on their faces. He knows exactly what they're doing because he knows their hearts and what they think of what he's doing. You see, the question this, this section should be driving us to ask is, if everyone... If increasingly people are seeing in Jesus the more they've been looking for, why is it that these Pharisees, these guardians of God's truth, could not see in Jesus the truth from this God they claim to represent? That, that he was the way to this God they claim to know. That he is the life in this God that was so dear to them. Why could they not see it? Look at Jesus' answer. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, 
but the sick. I haven't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus is telling these religious people that the reason they don't see him is the answer because they're asking the wrong question. They're looking through the wrong lens. What lens are they looking through? Well, the Pharisees as a group at this time had only existed for about 200 years. The Pharisees were not really the religious establishment, the rulers. They were a group of people that we might call lay people, lay leaders who were becoming very influential. They had risen up after God's people had had returned from exile to Babylon, and they never wanted to be taken into exile again, and they were going to make sure that they wouldn't by following the letter of God's law to the T, so much to the T that they put boundaries way away outside of God's law so that they wouldn't even come close to breaking the law. One of the key laws, which this next section will focus on, was the law of the Sabbath. In the Ten Commandments, the the commandment that had the most words and rationale attached to it was this law of Shabbat, Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Oh my goodness. They made rules for how to keep it holy. They had 39 categories of rules. Not 39 rules, 39 categories of rules. Hundreds of rules. Rules of how, how many steps you could take on the Sabbath. And they didn't even have Fitbits. They counted their steps on the Sabbath. They got to eat, but you couldn't cut up any veggies on the Sabbath. Rules. And do you know what the Pharisees thought they would get by keeping these rules, especially the rule of the Sabbath? They thought that when enough people when they could get enough people to keep enough of the rules well enough, Messiah would come and lead them out of the oppression of Rome and lead them into the kingdom of God. I'm very certain that with his body language, Jesus probably did something like we would do when he used the word righteous. I haven't come to call the righteous. He put quotes around that. It's not that he didn't think righteousness was important. It was very important. But what he's saying is that any idea of righteousness that's based on doing the right things, any kind of right things, is simply self-righteous. And it's a Pharisee, a recovering Pharisee, the man we've come to know as Paul, that helps us to see that. It's what the book of Romans is all about. Paul was raised in. He was steeped in. The Pharisees' righteousness paradigm. But when Paul met Jesus, he came to realize, well, as he says in Romans 3, quoting, quoting from the Pharisees' own Bible, the Old, the Old Testament, it's like, you guys, you should have seen it. He quotes the Old Testament and says, there's no one righteous. Not even one. Okay, but so what? Is there something deeper here? Yes, there is. And and, and this one's controversial, folks. This is just as controversial today as Jesus breaking the Sabbath laws were to the Pharisees because it's breaking one of our cultural laws. What is the significance of no one being righteous? Verse 11 of Romans 3. All have turned away They, together, 
have become worthless. Not worth less. In other words, ah, there's some dents. We can put it in the sale bin and at least get some money for it. Uh Uh-uh. Worthless. You don't like that translation? Let's check out another one. All together have become useless. Oops. The problem is not the rules. The problem is the paradigm on which rule-keeping is based... That there is some way in which I can prove that I have some worth, that I am worthy. See, Jesus wants to eat with me. That must be a sign that I am worth something. Do you know what we've done today? We've thrown out all the rules, but we've kept the worthiness paradigm. We're desperately looking for ways to prove that we're worth something. We even say things like, you know what, I must be worth something or else Jesus wouldn't have died for me. Really? Every time we say that, because something inside of us pushes back and says, but, but what about, if only they knew about that, got to hide this, right? And we're constantly going to counselors and seminars and listening to self-help gurus who will help us convince our hearts we're worth something. Jesus said, wrong paradigm. Jesus gets away from the righteousness paradigm together and said, I have not come to relate to the righteous. Why? Because there is no such category. Can you tell me why my clicker's not working? Sorry, Donna. The Pharisees are looking for someone to claim good people and rescue them from bad people who are oppressing them and make life smooth for them. That's not why I've come, said Jesus. I've come to claim all people who recognize an inner sickness that no amount of outward behavior will cure and bring them healing. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. So what does this tell us about what it requires to get into that friendship relationship with Jesus? Well, it's simply seeing Jesus is the sin doctor I need and recognize that everything else is a spin doctor that I get sucked into. Now, there are some people, religious people even today, who would squirm at Jesus' answer Well, people aren't just sick. It's deeper than that. People are sinners. Folks, this isn't my term. This This is Jesus' term. Sickness is one valid way of describing everyone's core problem. There's some inner brokenness and healing we all need, and religious people can slip into a place when they need it most. So, Back to the question, does that mean that Jesus is not concerned about righteousness? No. Jesus is very concerned about righteousness in another place, Matthew chapter 5. Sorry, Donna. Next slide. Matthew chapter 5. Probably with some of these Pharisees listening, Jesus says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees 
and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Thank you, Terry. So what's that about? More rules? Tighter rules? No. Listen again back to Paul the Pharisee, the recovering Pharisee, Romans chapter 5. For if by the trespass of one man, death reigned through one man, how much more will those who receive, receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. In verse 19. Oh my, I'm sorry, folks. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, Adam, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, Jesus, the many will be proven to be righteous? No, made righteous. It's righteousness that is imputed, granted, accredited. It's based on forgiveness, but it's way more than forgiveness. Forgiveness takes us back to zero. Righteousness, more than a right standing, but a worthiness before God. Not because I am worth something, but because I have seen in Jesus the one who is worth everything. I have seen in his death the one who heals Everything in my inner core, I have seen that I stand before God on the basis of realizing I can't stand before God without coming in, coming under Jesus, but that in Jesus, I am seen by God to be like Jesus. I no longer have to be concerned about whether I am worthy. It's not whether I am worthy, it's because Jesus is worthy. You see, you don't have to change to, become, to come to Jesus, but when you come to Jesus, everything will change. You will begin to have a willingness to be a little more transparent about the unrighteousness that is still in here that Jesus is working on. Get it out there. You will have an increasing desire to pursue true righteousness beginning with your attitudes to people. You will have the ability by God's Spirit in you, to, which witnesses with our spirits, said Paul, that we are sons of God and live for the goal of becoming like the Son of God. And you will have the desire and ability to focus on that dream when we will stand before Jesus fully clothed in His righteousness and allow yourself to have that dream pull you forward to that. Do you see some of those things emerging in you? What are you doing to, to, to water those seeds? If you don't, you've got to ask yourself what paradigm you're really living in. Number three, what is it I get when I get this picture? What will be the primary experience of those who live with this new paradigm? Well, that's what Mark gives us in the in the beginning of chapter 3, we're going to roar through this. We're going to look at a general characteristic and then a very specific one. Beginning uh, chapter 3, beginning at verse 18. Now the disciples of John and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came to Jesus and asked Jesus, 
How is it that John's disciples and the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? So these aren't the Pharisees that come to Jesus. It's people Jesus is teaching. This is a legitimate question. John's disciples, disciples of John the Baptist, who are authentic, waiting for Jesus, they're fasting. Probably a good thing. The right hand. The Pharisees, well, not so much. What's this all about? Well, first of all, we got to see that fasting in the Bible... Okay, let's get it on the t- off the table. Okay, fasting in the Bible has nothing to do with physical health. Okay, nothing. If you read stuff about fasting in pop literature today, that's part of a healthy diet and using the Bible as a foundation for it, you know it's somebody who's misusing the Bible. Fasting was not about physical health. It was about a statement before God that He was more important than everything. It was a sign of mourning before God that you were repenting for, for pursuing thing, other things that were more important. And it was a statement that you're willing to wait on God for what He has to give. Under the Old Testament law, there was one day of the year, one day of the year when they were required to fast. It was a 24-hour period during the Day of Atonement Now, there were other times when you were encouraged to choose to do it, to show your heart before God, but but it wasn't a rule. John the Baptist's disciples and the Pharisees are fasting, but the disciples of Jesus are not. So what's with that? Well, the Pharisees had created rules around something that was supposed to be a heart thing. There were all kinds of days when really righteous people had to fast. Special days during the year. But really, really righteous people, like the Pharisees, they also fasted every Tuesday and every Thursday. Really skinny people. For at least part of the day. This was part of their righteousness paradigm. You get the irony here? Something that was supposed to be done as a sign of humiliation before God and humility before God became something that was perverted to elevate myself above other people. That's the trouble with the righteousness paradigm. The question, this this legitimate question is, why are Jesus' disciples not fasting? Well, Jesus answered like he sometimes does with, with this word picture. Verse 19. Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot so long as they have him with them. So there's two things we need to know that Jesus is bringing together with this word picture. Number one, there was one key time when even the Pharisees said, no, 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 you can't fast during that time. It's during a wedding feast. The week before the wedding, the bridegroom shows up and it is now party time. Hey, can't fast during that time. That was the Pharisees' paradigm. But number two, what Jesus is drawing in here is a word picture that was rooted in their their Bible, the Old Testament, the Old Testament prophets. The whole idea of a marriage relationship was used to portray the broken relationship of people with God. Spiritual adultery. And in the Old Testament... God divorces his people. And one of the reasons the Pharisees created these fasts 
was to mourn the fact that that relationship was broken and someday God would restore it. They wanted that day to come. And Jesus is saying that he is the one who has come to restore this relationship. When he makes this statement, it's another statement very similar to what he says when he first came on the scene. The kingdom of God is near. That's what he's saying. There's actually something very provocative about this analogy Jesus used with the Pharisees because in the prophets, there's no question who the bridegroom was. It was God. And the reaction to Jesus saying this would have been the very same reaction when he claimed to forgive sins. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Bingo. Jesus' point is if you were really fasting with the right heart, a repentant heart, you would see me for who I am and you would celebrate I am the bridegroom. I am the righteous one. God himself who has come to restore our relationship. This isn't morning time. It's time to stop morning. I've come. Because everything your heart's looking for and everything your heart needs is in me. And then he gives these two more word pictures. Beautiful word pictures, and it's these two word pictures that sort of sealed that more theme in my heart as I was studying this book. Verse 21, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth onto an old garment. If he does, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. When I get Jesus, I can't go back because, well, these were the days, of course, of natural cloth, right? No more, no, no new fabrics. It was all natural cloth. You've got to think back to, well, a couple of years ago, all the rage was raw cotton jeans, right? They paid big bucks for unshrunk cotton jeans that would shrink. You saw a piece of shrunk or of unshrunk denim onto shrunk denim? It's going to rip. Next one. Similar word picture, verse 22. No one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No one pours new wine into wineskins. Wineskins were made of what? Leather. You'd, you'd pour wine that wasn't totally fermented into leather, and, and it would front, and, and, and the leather bladder would, would uh, stretch a little bit. You did that too many times, all of a sudden, it rips. You put it into a container that's already stretched from previous wine, it's going to burst. Here's the point. Here's the point. When you get Jesus, you don't get less. You don't get the same. You get more. It's going to expand and increase all of the old paradigms, and they're going to burst. They're useless. When you get Jesus, when you really get Jesus, you are not limiting yourself. You're not putting yourself in a tighter box. You are putting yourself in a limitless box. Some of us who were raised in a churchy environment think that we've been hard done by because of all the things we can't do or not supposed to do and wouldn't look good if we do. Sometimes we need to hear it from people who have been there because when they get Jesus, what they discover is not a limiting life but an expanding life. Not a boxed-in life but a freeing life. Not a smaller world but a bigger world. And then Mark completes this section with two incidents relating to one theme. And it's back to that Pharisee's biggest righteousness measure, the Sabbath. We're going to quickly read 
through these verses, beginning in verse 23. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields. As the disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, look, what they're doing is unlawful on the Sabbath. He answered them, and have you never read what King David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God, not just he entered the house of God, and he ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. He also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Another time he went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. He'd already healed a man and they knew he's into healing. But you can't heal on the Sabbath. Only if a person's dying. This guy wasn't dying. So he had to wait till the next day. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. He didn't just do this privately. He made everyone see it. Stand up. Then Jesus asked, which is lawful to do on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill it? They knew that somehow they were going to be in a trap, so they didn't say anything. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. And then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. So what's this all about? Well, obviously, still part of this same theme, this clash of authorities. Who has the authority? Jesus or the rules, righteousness, Pharisees? You see, one of the points about this is that clashes with Jesus are never over the rules. They're always over who rules. Jesus rules. But is there more to it than that? Why why Sabbath? Why was Jesus continually and deliberately picking a fight on Sabbath? Well, it was because they had turned what was to be the supreme gift of God into the most rigid rule. What was the Sabbath? The Sabbath was the seventh day of the week which was given to them Not as a day they couldn't work, but as a day when, like God, on the seventh day of creation, they were allowed to not work. They were to rest from their work. It was a statement of trust in God. It was a statement of thankfulness to God. I think the key to understanding this whole section is Jesus' own invitation. Remember what Sabbath means? It means rest Matthew chapter 11, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle, humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My burden is easy. I am the Lord of the Sabbath because I am the Sabbath, the rest your heart is longing for. When I truly understand Jesus more, 
what I experience and what I can live in experience can only be described as, as rest in the deepest sense possible. Now, it's interesting that Jesus says the wedding feast has begun. That meant the bridegroom had arrived and the wedding was sure to happen. The wedding itself, the formal commitment of Jesus to us was at the end of his time. When Jesus is saying that when the bridegroom is taken away, they'll mourn, what do you think he's referring to? He's referring to his death, the formal act in which he made us his, gave us his righteousness. He was here. He was here to recreate God's order. And that would happen in his death and resurrection. I love the way Tim Keller summarizes the meaning of this passage. At the end of his great act of creation, the Lord said, it is finished. It's done. And he could rest. On the cross, at the end of his great act of redemption, Jesus says, it is finished. And we can rest. On the cross, he says, Jesus was saying about the work underneath your work, the thing that truly makes you weary, this need to prove yourself because, who you, because of who you are and what you do are never good enough. It's finished. The paradigm is over. He has lived the life you should have lived. He has died the death you should have died. If you rely on Jesus' finished work, you know that God is satisfied with you and you can be satisfied with life. You don't get rest through rules. Uptight is what you get from rules. The kind of rest Jesus is talking about is not, is not something you get simply from taking a break or getting more sleep, although you'll do both of those better if you understand the rest Jesus is talking about. It's a rest you get when you stop thinking about worth, when you stop going for acceptance from people, when you stop demanding attention and affirmation from people. It's a rest at a deep level that comes from getting into the more that Jesus gives. More, Jesus. Are you living from rest? Are you living in rest? Lord, we confess that rest is not a descriptor of how we tend to live life. We recognize there are grooves we tend to slip into that are, that are less than type of grooves. We become done right upright and not just a little uptight. Today, Lord, help us again to just release ourselves into the rest you have given us. Sometimes we throw up our hands and give up on the battle of becoming more like Jesus and, and we defend and assert our freedom. Not freedom in Jesus, but it becomes freedom from Jesus. Lord, help us this week to live in and live from the rest we have in you. Today we lift those who need your healing rest. We, we bring before you Klaus Reimer. Lord, uh, Bring to his heart the rest he can have in you. And Father, we pray that you will 
see fit to translate that into a physical healing rest. We lift up um, John and Sarah Vale and their little daughter, Heviana, and Father, restore her, but through this all, help Sarah and Jonathan to just live deeper into your rest. We pray today for Terry and Jane Basks and our missionary partners in rural BC. Pray that you will strengthen their hearts at whatever their point of need is today. And Lord, may people see in them and be drawn to you because of the rest that they see them living in. And Father, as a sign of our commitment to, to, to release our cares and burdens to you, to be anxious about nothing, but live in your rest, we delightfully give to you our tithes and offerings to celebrate and commit ourselves to living in the rest and freedom from things that we so often pursue. Lord, we love you. Jesus, we thank you that you love us. And in his name, all of God's people said, amen.